So what we're focusing on as you're creating this donkey is we're focusing on the beginning of Holy Week, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, there's different perspectives on this in the different Gospels, as you know. There's actually a handout which you can take with you afterwards. Um, something I should say right now, I don't know if we, Kim, we were going to save this for the end, but um, we actually, you can, you can let us know tonight if you'd like to order uh, a book for, a, a, one up there in the front. On the table, right here. Oh, there, there you go. If you're going to stick with this the whole time, there, you can let us know and we're going to order one of these for you. And this is something you can put your artwork in as well as your notes from this time. And you'll see here it's got a nice little cover page, Art of the Passion Week. Your art fit will fit each week perfectly in there along with the notes that you get or the notes that you take. So if you're interested in getting one of these... Um, we have a sign-up sheet, I believe. Is that right? Um, we'll, we'll have that available at the back table. Just so, let us know, and we'll have them available for you next week. Um, we can go ahead and order them. They're four fifty. Is that right? So basically five dollars. So we're going to do this for the first week. In the second week, we might get a couple more. But after that, for those who have come for the first two weeks, this will be available. But after that, it's going to be you, you, take, you handle your and take care of your own art. So, some notes that Betty's passing out to you. What my intention was as you're continuing to finish was to talk about, as we're doing the, looking at the Lord's Prayer on Sunday mornings, was to look at the petition of the Lord's Prayer in light of the day of Holy Week or the time in, during Holy Week that we're focusing on. Because I, what I want you to see is that this wasn't just, as I, as I prayed when we started, a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, but it really is a, a prayer to shape how we live, and Jesus reflected that in his own life. So my intention is to share a couple of observations with you based upon what we just talked about this past Sunday, that part of the Lord's Prayer, and then I've got a little something extra at the end, and we'll see how we do in terms of time if, there's some, if you want to ask questions. So what you'll see on the handout, and I, I didn't fill everything in so you could take down some notes, but I have the first, the introduction, the um, address of the Lord's Prayer starts with Our Father. And what you have in each section of this is a little excerpt from my sermon. When it says character reference and it has that date, that's just from what I preached on Sunday. So I'm sort of giving you sort of the, a, a reference to what was the main idea for that part of the Lord's Prayer. And then I'm going to share some, some things with you. So Our Father, lot, lots of things we talked about on Sunday. But one of the, the, the key things that I wanted you to take away from that is this understanding that um, when we say our Father, when we talk about the Father, we really are talking first about his relationship to Jesus. That Jesus and the Father, Jesus is the Son and the Father are one. Jesus goes out of his way to continually emphasize that if we've seen the Father, if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. You know, and I reference this on Sunday. Philip actually says, just show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the implication of that being, we shouldn't just look at what Jesus does or what he says separate from God as Father. It's intended for us to see God the Father in what Jesus is doing. So to bring this together, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it's not just Jesus that's coming into Jerusalem. It's God the Father that's coming into Jerusalem. Um, again, we understand traditionally, and we'll celebrate it again on Palm Sunday, that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it's basically his coming out party, if you will, as the Messiah. Up to this point, depending on different gospel accounts, it's, it, there's been a, either a messianic secret, sign of kind of keeping it a low profile, or it hasn't been openly declared, where this is seen as Jesus saying, yes, I am the son of David. I am the, the, for, the, the foretold king of Israel. And that's certainly how people address him. You'll remember, and again, our gospel accounts give us di a different time frame on this, when it happens, and don't lose sleep over this, because I don't. 
uh, of Jesus being anointed by, remember the woman in Bethany who comes, who comes with the alabaster jar and she gets chided for spending that expensive oil anointing Jesus. Jesus will say, she's preparing me for my burial, which is looking ahead to what will happen. But you could also see that anointing as another affirmation of that Jesus is the king of Israel. Jesus is the one that has been, been waiting for. Now here's something interesting that I want you to see. Um, when we think about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, I want you, and, and this is beyond just the, the address, Our Father, and I have it down there on your notes. It's interesting to parallel the Lord's Prayer as Jesus teaches it to us, with, and, and, and as we think about the Lord's Prayer, to think about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as king, to parallel that with King David when he anointed his son Solomon as the next king of Israel. And I have it there for you. It's recorded in 1 Chronicles 29. And as I read this scripture, see if you hear echoes of Jesus teaching us to pray the Lord's Prayer in this. Particularly for one, one part. Praise to you, David says to God, as Solomon is being anointed as king. Praise to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel. From everlasting to everlasting, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. Is it just me or does this sound a little bit like the Lord's Prayer? Do you see where we get the part that Jesus never teaches us to pray? For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. And there's other places where this is referenced. This is why the, the church said this is a great way to, an addition to end on. And it's seen as, a, it's seen as an ending to, uh, it's a, the, part of why the church affixed it to the prayer is looking ahead to Jesus coming back. So as we pray this, it's sort of anticipating the, the, the if you will, the final time we'll pray this prayer. Because when Christ comes again, just like we think about the last time that we'll take communion, together in the way that we're used to taking it when Jesus comes back and then the last time that we'll pray this prayer and imagine it praying it as we see Jesus coming and we see the fulfillment of, of everything that we've anticipated but in this prayer I think it's really interesting that you see similarities to what Jesus teaches us to pray and the circumstances are interesting David is praying this as his son is being anointed king over Israel Jesus teaches us to pray this prayer and you have to think of this prayer as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem being revealed as king so again, with that image in mind, that it's not just Jesus coming into Jerusalem, but it is God the Father coming into Jerusalem. Here now, the, 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 what the Gospel writers give us, how they describe that scene, and now picture not just Jesus the Son, but the Father as well. The crowds went before Him, and, the, and those that followed Him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in what? The name of the Lord. And we'll get to this later, but what was the first petition we looked at? Hallowed be Thy name. Hosanna in the highest. Through Jesus the Son, our Father comes into Jerusalem. And think of the significance of this going back to when the first time our Father came into Jerusalem. Through the Ark of the Covenant, correct? Right? Through the, the, the temple and His presence filling, filling the temple. Our Father, later on, you know that after Jesus comes, and again, depending upon your gospel account, the timing of this is different. I don't lose sleep over it. Is There's a point where Jesus weeps over the city, Right? And now, think of that as not just Jesus weeping over the city, but our Father weeps over the city. 
And listen to what Jesus says. Listen even to the words he says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Does it strike you odd what Jesus is saying there? In one sense, you can understand Jesus has been doing his ministry for three years, so he could be talking about himself, which he is. But do you also hear, even though it's sort of motherly, motherly type of language, a father's language in this? Oh, how I have longed to gather you as my children, but you were not willing. I mean, I think there's real depth here to understand that this is also God the Father weeping over his city, the city of Jerusalem. Think about what happens after the triumphal entry. Do you remember where Jesus goes immediately after? Where does he go next? The temple. The temple is the house of the Lord. If, where, if, where is the Father? The Father is in the temple, right? But, and again, we, last year we talked about this, and this is somewhat controversial. It's my take on things. Is, is God's presence truly in the temple when Jesus enters into it? Or in the midst of everything that took place in the exile, has, is, have they been waiting for God's presence to come back in? Because there's lots of things that go awry in the temple being lost, and even with the temple being rebuilt. There's never anything in Scripture that says when they rededicate the temple that God's presence refilled the temple. I think that's very, very significant. So if you go with that, and even if you don't, just go with it for a moment, our Father enters the temple. Not just Jesus, our Father enters the temple, and what does Jesus do? He judges it, right? He calls out. He's, he enters the temple, we're told, and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house. Who's the my? The father. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And very significant what comes next there is... As our Father, not Jesus, through Jesus our Father comes in and judges the temple. And this is significant to me. Our Father fills the temple with His presence again because there's true worship of Him. Because what are we told next? And after this happens, the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple and He healed them. This is the whole point of what the temple was supposed to be about, right? This is the point of why Israel was created. This is what the Father... Think about what God said through the prophets. The Father said to the prophets, who were the people of Israel neglecting in the midst of their sacrifices? The blind, the lame, the poor. And so you see this reversal in this moment. Our Father comes in and He, he clears the temple. He cleans it out. He judges it. And then in the same moment, you see the true worship of God because the Father is present. Jesus is present in the temple. But also you'll remember what happens, what we're told, is in that moment, the chief priests and the scribes, and I love how this is written for us, the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that He did. The wonderful things that He did and the children crying out in the temple. And I love that too, the children. You may think little ones, but if we're all children of God, it's everyone crying out in the temple. And they're crying out again because the temple has come alive, because the presence of God is there. They're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And you would think, based upon what was written, the wonderful things happening there, and all the children crying out, that it's going to be a good end to this sentence. But if you go to the next page, we're told they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? They're aghast because in their mind, that should only be said to who? The Father. Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus doesn't say, oh yes, you're right. Jesus says, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. This is true worship in the temple. This is what it's supposed to be like. 
And this, what Jesus quotes here is a reference, just to further underscore, that when we see Jesus, we see the Father. This is a reference to Psalm 8. And if you were to open up your Bibles and look at Psalm 8, it's called a psalm of praise, a declaration of, ma- of the majesty of Yahweh. It's praising the Father's name. Jesus, I think, when he responds here, doesn't perceive this. And you know, remember throughout the Gospels, does Jesus ever say, hey, worship me? Never. Who does he say? The Father. The Father. The Father. I don't think Jesus here perceived this as worship of him, which is why he reflects it back and says, this is worship of the Father. This is what I came to do. And what does he say, you know, remember way, way back with Nicodemus? To worship in spirit and in truth. This is worshiping in spirit and in truth. So, just for this first part of reflecting on our Father, and I really encouraged you to see that as a means to an intercessory prayer this week. I hope you, you endeavored to do that at least one day this week. I, I just think when you, when, you, when you take this insight, it really shifts. It gives a real depth to what you understand going on on Palm Sunday. There's great significance in that it's Christ. God in the flesh, the Son of God. But it's, I think sometimes we have this tendency in the church, even if you listen sometimes in some of our songs, that we create this separation between the Father and the Son. And I think when you read the Gospels closely, it's anything but this separation. Jesus wants to have this understanding that it's inseparable. The Father and the Son are one. So that's the first thing we see. The next petition which builds on this, or the next, excuse me, part of the address is it's not just our Father, it's our Father who art in heaven, right? And I have again an excerpt from the sermon where the the point of understanding God in heaven is not to understand God as being physically or geographically, however you want to think of it, as being far away, but it's more of this understanding of God being far out in relation to us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Interestingly enough, after Jesus does what he does in the temple, after the Father cl- judges the temple, cleanses it, and there's true worship, what happens in the next, the next couple of days? Jesus goes back to the temple, and do you remember what happens? We have a succession of different things that go on. It's all around the same idea. The chief priests, and this is at the temple, by the way, where it should be, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, for the final time, confront and challenge Jesus' authority. What I think is fascinating is everything that they challenge Jesus on, and this confrontation, by the way, lasts, can you imagine how exhausting this was, from morning to late afternoon. I mean, I, I did Q&A with you guys on, in the morning from 8.30 or 9 o'clock to 10, and then I preached, and I thought, man, that's, that was a lot. This is, this is early morning, or early to late afternoon. This is a long day. But consider the topics of conversation, and I'm going to tease them out for you, but the topics of conversation all revolved around the same idea, that our Father is in heaven. His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. Think about it. First, Jesus' authority is questioned. Do you remember when his authority is questioned? Where does your authority come from? And he basically, as he always does, reframes it back to them and says, and says what did you make of John? You saw what John did. What do you make of John? You remember how they give us this aside in Scripture where it says, they kind of, you kind of get, imagine them all huddling together and they go, um, if we say that he was from heaven, then what, he's going to say, why didn't we believe him? And if we say he was just a man, then they're gonna, he's going to say, well, then why did you go out there? So they basically say nothing. But Jesus is teasing out, you know where this authority comes from. This authority comes from my Father who is in heaven. The next topic, before it comes up, is Jesus, in light of this, tells the parable of the tenants. And do you remember the parable of the tenants? The whole point of the parable of the tenants is it talks about a master who is coming back, who wants to basically have an account for what's been done with his property. And remember, they respond violently, rejecting everyone who sent. And the centerpiece of this parable is when the master says, well, surely, if I send my son, 
they will receive my son. And this is a prophetic looking ahead. And in fact, that's not what happens. But again, what's the whole point of the parable? It's not pointing to Christ. It's pointing to the Father. This is a work that the Father's doing. The Father is, is coming back for an accounting of what has been done in his name. And then you have the question of paying taxes to Caesar. And should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And again, I think just, just living out of this petition, our Father who art in heaven, Jesus' response is brilliant. He basically says, Caesar is not in our Father's league. Right? He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You're mixing apples and oranges here. You're talking about earthly stuff, governmental stuff, and our Father who art in heaven. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you give to God what is God's. Right? Then there's this, you know, this brain stumper of a question that they throw at him. Remember this one about resurrection? You know, some people believe in resurrection and some people don't. Well, what happens if I get married and then somebody dies and I marry? This convoluted marriage thing. Whose wife will this person be? And Jesus doesn't get caught up in this you know, brain twister. Jesus comes out very, very elementary, but again, pointing to the otherness of God and says, our God is a God of the living, not the dead. He basically says, do you really think you're going to fit God inside your box? Do you really think that you're going to create some kind of scenario here that God can't operate in? Because our Father, who art in heaven, our Father's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He's not limited by us. And then Jesus turns it around, <laughs> and this is what ends the discussion, and he says, you want to do brain twisters? I got a brain twister for you. I got, a, I got, a, I got one to stump you. Whose son is the Messiah? If the Messiah is supposed to be the son of David, how does that work exactly? So whose son is the Messiah? And everyone doesn't know how to answer. And what Jesus is teasing out, I think, is the Messiah is the son of the Father, right? Which means what? The Messiah is the Father. Now this is where, and again, you know this because Jews today, the Jewish expectation then, and this is still a point of contention today, was for a human Messiah, not God. And what Jesus is doing here is saying, okay, how does that work if it's a human Messiah? Because this is what David said. How would that work, actually? And no one responds. So for me, in these first couple of days after the triumphal entry, I see Jesus just practically, in conversation, when people are challenging him, reflecting back to this idea of our Father who art in heaven, of just pointing out to this idea of God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And that leads us to the, to the last part, the first petition we looked at, looked at, hallowed be thy name. And you'll remember, I hope, that the, the main point I wanted you to catch with that is that it sounds like we're, being, we're praying for the ability to make God's name holy. And, and the, the reality is, we can't make God's name holy. God's name is holy regardless, which is good, which is good, right? God's name, God's name is not, the holiness of God's name is not contingent upon us. So the better way to think of that petition is, make your name holy in and through us, recognizing that God has to make his name holy through us, but that means we have to submit to what God wants to do. And I pointed out to you the irony that while we can't make God's name holy, right? There's nothing we can do to add to our Father's name. We can take away from our Father's name. Doesn't ultimately change his holiness, but we can besmirch, we can um, soil his reputation, misrepresent his character, right? So, we talked about this a second ago, coming back to it. What are the masses shouting when Jesus enters Jerusalem? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. The people are recognizing that Jesus represents, he is representing the Father. 
Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You represent the character, the person of our God, of our Father. Now, this sounds great, as we all know. Palm Sunday seems like everything is going to be fantastic, right? In just a couple of days, and, every, and then everybody's not shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting, Crucify him. Crucify him. Why? Because while the people get it right in the sense that Jesus comes in the name of the Lord, and they perceive that in that, God's name is going to be holy. The holiness of God's name is going to be lifted up. That's why they're worshiping, praising. What soon becomes clear, though, in, the next, in just a, few, few, uh, a couple of short days, is that the general populace's understanding of what glorifies the Father is different from what Jesus reveals, Right? We have a huge, what we have here, for those of you who are Cool Hand Luke fans, is a failure to communicate. (laughs) The people have a different understanding of what it means to glorify God, to make God's name whole, to to have God's name be holy in and through us. And if we doubt this, John tells us this right out of the gate, and I have it there for you. He tells us not just the general populace, he writes, at first, when all this is going down, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the disciples don't understand any of this. And then, I, I love that John does this. John gives us an aside and says they don't understand what it, when, it, when it's happening, but he writes, only after Jesus was glorified, very important word, did they realize these things that had been written about him and these things that had been done to him. Do you get this? So the disciples are in the same place as everybody else. When they hear the name of the Lord being blessed, glorified, they associate that with a specific expectation of what that is. And what every, what, what, if in one way what Holy Week is all about, which kind of goes back to our God, our Father who art in heaven, is what we expect and how we think God is glorified is, the, is not how God glorifies himself, how our Father glorifies himself. So, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but I also want to tease out something else interesting to me that John tells us. After, again, and, and everybody gives us different perspectives, a little adds things that we don't get from Mark or from Luke, John tells us that after he comes into Jerusalem, and we don't get this anybody anywhere else. This is fascinating to me, this little exchange. John tells us that as Jesus continues on, some Hellenist Jews who are in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, Hellenist, Hellenistic Jews, they come up to Philip and they ask, can we see Jesus? Can we talk to Jesus? Now, mind you, are these Israelites? Well, if they're Hellenistic Jews, what are they? They're Greeks who have converted to the faith. They're Gentiles, right? And when Jesus is told by Philip that they want to talk with him, Jesus doesn't say sure or no. He says something that you kind of go, what? Jesus says, this is the time for him to be glorified. He announces at that moment, the time has come for me to be glorified. And notice if you read that in John chapter 12, that in the same breath, Jesus then asks God the Father to glorify his name. Not Jesus' name, his Father's name. What, what did I say is the way we ought to pray, pray that petition? Make your name holy in and through us. Jesus literally prays, glorify your name, Lord, through what you are going to do in and through me. And if we had any doubts that that's what's going on, John then also tells us that a thunderous voice from heaven, whose voice, by the way, the Father's, states, I am glorified, and I will be glorified again. This is, right now, you got the whole, the crowd has already been cheering, but the real cheers, the real applause from heaven is in this moment. 
Not when he comes into Jerusalem. Because when they're cheering for him, they're not cheering for him with the right understanding of God's name. And then if that, and, but this is the moment where God, and again, it's an intimate moment where the Father and the Son are one, saying, this is what my name being glorified, my name being holy looks like. So, to break this down, how do the people expect the Father's glory to be revealed? When they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, what are they expecting? How do they think God's name will be glorified? What, what, what's the common expectation? What, what are they thinking? What's that? Jesus will be king. Okay, and what will come with that? What does that mean? Power. Power? Give me a specific expectation they have. Rome goes away. He is the king who is going to come in and end their oppression and dominion by Rome. And he's going to return Israel to power. And that's why in a couple of short days, and by the way, you do notice in the Gospels, John, I think, explicitly tells this. After Jesus does the things that we're talking about, John goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus then hid himself. He hid himself. Uh, it's John chapter 12, after the end of John, it'll say he'll, there'll be a point after Bethany where, John, where Jesus went and hid him, himself until the Passover. Which, by the way, if you're coming in with an entourage and you're having people declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it seems like an odd time to go away. But I'll get back to that in a second, why I think that is. So the people, what do they take away from the holiness of God's name? They think the holiness of God's name, God is glorified when Jesus comes to power as king and ends Roman oppression and establishes Israel back to power. Now, that's their expectation. But what I would ask you is, in what transpires in those, in those days between Jesus' arrival and the Passover feast, what we are given in the Gospels, do the people by and large take away from or add to the holiness of God's name? What's going on in the temple? That adding to God's... It's taking away from the glory of God's name. That's, a, that's strike one. You are not letting my name be holy in and through you. Right? How about the response of the spiritual leadership? Not once, but twice. What do they think they're doing? Tell your disciples to shut up. He said they say that when he comes into Jerusalem. Right? And Jesus says, even the stones would cry out. If I tell them to stop, the stones are going to cry out. And then in the temple, when the blind and the lame are healed and the children of the Lord are crying out in the temple, once again, the spiritual leadership says, do you hear what they're saying? Tell them to pipe down. And Jesus says, no, this is glorifying my Father. So strike two, right? The response of the spiritual leadership is not representing God's name well. Okay, let's press a little bit further. How about the abuses of power that take place behind the scenes? Do you remember reading in John when all of a sudden they, now people start to get together and they conspire about how they can murder Jesus? What, what charges they can go up against? Do you remember Judas gets approached to sell out Jesus? Any of the stuff that's going down that's not Jesus-centered, is any of this glorifying God's name? I think there's probably only one person who glorifies God's name in this time during Holy Week, and that would be the woman who breaks the jar who anoints Jesus' feet and washes it with her hair. And Jesus specifically points to that as glorifying the Father. Glorifying Him and so glorifying the Father. And then if we go further, and this will come up on this in the next couple of weeks, <laughs> do the disciples glorify God's name? They're, 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 they're freaking out. They're fighting about who's going to be who's going to be top dog. They're falling asleep in the garden. <laughs> You've got Judas who's betraying Jesus. You've got Peter who's denying Jesus. And save maybe an argument for John who seems to stick by with Jesus' mom. Everybody else goes... Right? So God's name 
is not being glorified by anyone else but Christ during Holy Week. Now, I told you how do the people anticipate God's, the Father's glory being revealed, but how does Jesus anticipate the Father's glory being revealed? Do you remember when I told you about Jesus saying, the time has now come for me to be glorified, and then the thunderous voice from heaven says, I am glorified and I will be glorified. If you read that in John, Jesus then says, which tells you this is how God's glory is going to be revealed. He says, now, now will come the judgment of the world. Now, the prince of this world, Satan, will be cast out. The people think the problem is who? Rome. Jesus says the problem is who? Satan. The people think that Jesus is coming to judge the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, no, no, now is the time to judge the world. The world is being judged. Now, I, this is so cool. I'm, I've been having to not get ahead here. Because this, I think, is really, really cool. Everything that we've talked about, this picture, this differing picture, the, people, the way the people think that God's name is made holy in and through them, and the way Jesus is going to show how God's name is made in, holy in and through us, it all looks back to before everything that we just talked about, it all looks back to a prophecy that Ezekiel made. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 36, and I have it there so you don't have to look for it, Ezekiel gets this future-oriented prophecy in which in this prophecy, the Lord says that one day he will vindicate or hallow his name. And let's read this. Let's look at this. Therefore say to the Israelites, God says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show you, this is at the bottom of page three, by the way, and then we'll go to page four. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. Bam. I mean, bam. How does Jesus anticipate the Father's glory being revealed? Right out of Ezekiel. God's name will be made holy in and through us by our Father's initiative to show the holiness of His name. In Ezekiel's words, to prove it through the Son. God's name will be made holy in and through us through our Father's work of cleansing us from our impurities and our idols through the cross. God, our Father's name, will be made holy in and through us through our Father's promise of giving us a new heart and a new spirit through the resurrection. I don't know if you've ever made this connection before. And, and this is a connection I believe that is made. We have Resurrection Sunday, the event of the resurrection, and then we have Pentecost. When does resurrection life begin for us? Pentecost. Pentecost. 
The event of resurrection happens on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is risen. You, you, this explains all the confusion. The disciples, the, the, nobody else experiences that resurrection life yet, right? That's why you have all of these on the one, and in some moments they get it and in other moments they don't. You know, they saw Jesus and then they think they didn't and Jesus just keeps teaching them and talking to them and then when Jesus is ascended into heaven, you still can tell they're not living out of this resurrection life because again, I love this picture. I know I tell this all the time but it's a great scene where Jesus ascends and they're all just looking up there and an angel comes and says, what are you looking at? And they go, well, he went just there. And he goes, well, he's not coming back, so get to work. And again, what do they do? They go fishing, and they also lock themselves in a room, pull out some dice, and say, well, we got to replace Judas. Right? That's priority one, okay? Because we, you know, we got to replace Judas. So let's play Yahtzee, and let's see who's going to be next. And in the midst of everything they do, that's not it. Resurrection life comes when the Holy Spirit comes on them, as Jesus said it would, Pentecost. That's where resurrection life comes in us. Hence, that's when Peter declares in that speech, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. He's not just talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's talking, I mean, he quotes back to Joel, which is end of the world kind of stuff. Your young men will, your old men will have visions and your young men will dream dreams. He's talking about this, you'll be risen from death. Pentecost is our birthday because we're resurrected in that moment. So what, what Jesus is going to do to glorify the Father begins at the cross. But in one sense, it comes full circle until Jesus comes back at Pentecost. That's where, and that's why the book of Acts starts right there. Boom. What does a resurrected body look like? The book of Acts. What does God's name being hallowed, made holy in and through us, look like? The book of Acts. There you go. Yeah then see God being glorified while Jesus is dying on the cross? Absolutely. John does. That's the one thing. If you read the God, she, the question was, do I see Jesus as being glorified when Jesus dies on the cross? That's why we have John's gospel. You read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Jesus' crucifixion is very, very disturbing. Until Jesus is resurrected, it's a nightmare. It's a tragedy. And it is a nightmare and a tragedy from our perspective. But John, you got to do, if you haven't never done this before, read, pick, pick your pick, Mark, Matthew, or Luke, read that gospel, and then read John, and you see a different Jesus. It's just a perspective where Jesus is triumphant, glorified. Cross, bring it. Yes. And, and again, it's, and you, if you step back, you go, okay, what's the difference here? John wants to emphasize, and he writes his gospel, the last, he's, he's the last of the, of the four. It's written later. He's writing to a church that's starting to go, um, was that crucifixion thing, was that always the plan? Or was that like a thing that went wrong? And then God kind of, you know, you remember how Kim taught you to erase on the board that God kind of said, okay, that didn't work, so I'll raise my son from the dead. John writes to go, no, 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 this was the plan. And that's why, you, I mean, look at, Je I'll just give you one example of this. Look at how Jesus stands before Pilate in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus doesn't say anything, right, when he's arrested. You read John, Jesus does some talking, <laughs> right? Jesus says, oh, you know, he, says, he, he, he talks and almost to a point where Pilate is kind of like taken, taken aback, where people are taken aback. So, yes, I think a big emphasis is Jesus is glorified in, at the cross, but in the resurrection, and if you will, why we need both in our faith, to say that Jesus is glorified on the cross, we can only say that, as Paul were right, because of the resurrection. If Jesus isn't, re isn't resurrected, then we're just playing a game of wishful thinking. We're just saying, oh, that's God's glory. That's why, again, 
if you don't believe that Jesus is risen, you don't share our faith. Because it's not, it's not enough. It's, sounds great. it's great that God loves us, that God loved us, and Jesus loved us to die for our sins. That is huge. Many, many people have given their life. Jesus gave an innocent life. But what matters is everything that Jesus said, everything he did, is vindicated by his resurrection. Because remember, the whole point, I think I talked about this on one of the podcasts for the Daily Devotional. If the whole idea is that Jesus, uh, there's, that's right, it's when Paul is before Agrippa uh, and Festus, sorry if you're not tracking with me on this, Paul is on trial if he goes back to Jerusalem and he's before a governor named Festus who has him brought before King Agrippa. And there's this great line where Festus basically says, you know, I don't know what they're accusing Paul of. He hasn't done anything wrong. He just keeps talking about this dead guy named Jesus who supposedly was raised from the dead. And what's key in that is it's absolutely right. It's nonsensical to keep talking about this Jesus guy, meaning it doesn't matter what he said, it doesn't matter what he did, but it matters if he was raised from the dead because that means everything that was said against him, whether you ignored him as the Roman Empire or as the Jewish leadership, you said, he is wrong, he is not of the Lord. The resurrection says, "Uh uh-uh, the resurrection says he is He is who he said he is, and what he said is true. Okay, so now I want to get to the last part, which relates to what you drew. One final word on the donkey. What's with the donkey? What's with the donkey? I'm with Kim. I love art, by the way, and the the piece that you you finished on is my favorite piece of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem as well. Just the color, everything about it, it just just grabs me. But if if you will, what's with the donkey? I mean, this is the most, go with me on this, the most important publicity moment in Jesus' life, right? And he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Really? What about about the idea that image matters, right? I mean, you're going to make a statement, ride in on a chariot, ride in on a horse, okay? He rides in on a donkey. Now, and by the way, it's not simply that Jesus simply uses whatever around. I wish I could say that, oh, Jesus just said, ah, anything will do. We got a donkey, a donkey. No, we're told specifically he's picky. He has a plan. He goes through a lot of trouble to get a donkey for his trip. And not just any donkey, by the way. He has a special one in mind, and he sends his disciples, as you know, to fetch it. It's all part of his plan. He has an image in mind. And one of those images, which I've given to you, is this prophecy in Zechariah 9 about the king of Jerusalem riding into town on a donkey to set the people free. And it reads, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and, f- and form the river to the ends of the earth. So, in essence, it's not just... Be- I really want you to make sure you get this. Jesus doesn't find a donkey because he's like, oh, wait a second, hold on. Zachariah said it had to be a donkey. Mm, oh, i got to make sure it's a donkey because otherwise it's going to be a major snafu. The point of this prophecy is not about the donkey, per se. The point of this donkey is when you see this sign, when a ki- our king comes on a donkey, you know our father's going to change things for the better. And so that's the point. So Jesus comes in on a donkey because it's foretold in prophecy. But here's something else. I don't know if you're like me. Maybe you're not. Maybe you've heard, maybe heard this teaching before. When I think about Jesus on a donkey, I tend to think of that as a sign of humility. Jesus is demonstrating his humility. Many of you are nodding your heads. Okay, 
Here's some food for thought. A couple interesting things about donkeys, and I love that picture that Kim put up of an actual donkey. Almost picture that in your mind. We tend to think of donkeys as being dumb. But donkeys, did you know this, are smarter than horses. Donkeys are smarter than horses. Donkeys don't follow blindly. They're not easily spooked. Donkeys make decisions, and this is saying it in a politically correct way for donkeys everywhere. Donkeys make decisions based out of a strong sense of protection and preservation, which in other words means they're stubborn. Donkeys refuse to do the dumb things that humans ask them to. Just ask Balaam, for example. Remember Balaam? The prophet Balaam is on his way to curse Israel. He's riding his donkey on a narrow path. And suddenly, if you don't remember this story, the donkey stops in his path and she refuses to go any further. Balaam is so angry, he starts beating the donkey, trying to get her to keep on going. But the donkey refuses. She's stubborn. She lays down in the middle of the path, an act of defiance, right? Finally, and this is, the, all the youth group love this, you know, you know, when God made Balaam an ass or talked out of it, you know, all these different titles you come up with. Finally, God opens the mouth of the donkey. And the donkey tells Balaam, just appreciate the irony of this, mind you. The donkey, God is speaking, of course, but the donkey tells Balaam, she won't go any further because there's an angel of the Lord standing on the path with a drawn, drawn sword ready to kill Balaam. Who's dumb now? <laughs> the donkey refuses to go any further because the angel will kill them. Point being, the donkey can see things Balaam can't. Interesting thing, and I, 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 uh, I, you can look this up, if you, I think if you Google it, with some of the th details I'm giving you, but there's an actual piece of graffiti from ancient Rome. Some people think it goes, da goes back to the first century. That's not certain. But um, it's a picture, this graffiti from Rome, of a crucified donkey. Of a crucified donkey. And the inscription underneath it says, Alexamos worships his God. In the picture, God is the donkey man on the cross, and we see Alexamos holding up a hand probably in a gesture of worship. Now, this was meant to be a mockery. And it wasn't unusual for Christians to be mocked as worshiping a donkey. Tertullian, one of our early church fathers, writes in the second century talking about this common accusation. It was a slur against Jesus. This image is intended to be an insult to Christians. It's intended to mock their belief in Jesus. But here's the thing about this picture, that if you, if you, if you can find it online, and if not, I have it, I can show it to you. There's another inscription near this picture in a different hand. So the first inscription underneath says, Alexamos worships his God. But this other inscription in another hand near the picture says, Alexamos is faithful. It's a response. Do you get this? I mean, if you, I don't know if you pay attention out there, but it's like our modern-day graffiti wars on the sides of buildings. One group sprays paint to make fun of another, and then that group responds with a comment of their own, right? We all, none of us know what any of it means, but that's what's going on in graffiti, right? Alexamos is faithful. Alexamos is faithful. Apparently, it would seem, at least to someone back then, that there's something true about the God Alexamos worships and the way of the donkey. Remember, Jesus is very intentional about picking a donkey on which to ride into Jerusalem. The way of Jesus 
is the way of the donkey. And what I mean by that is, remember when I told you how we get told in John that Jesus, after a certain amount of time, hides himself until the Passover? He just basically goes out of public sight. Jesus stubbornly refuses to take the reins of the world. I mean, you come in, everyone's throwing down their clothes, palm leaves, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's the king. Jesus stubbornly refuses to take the reins of the world. Jesus refuses to take charge of the city. And by the way, just let's just pile on here. You go in, you clean the temple, you're healing the lame and the blind, man, and the children are crying out to you in the temple. You can take power. I mean, if you want a following, people, they haven't seen anything like this in the temple in a long, long time. Jesus does not take power charge of the city. When all the forces in the world open up an easy road to success, to power, to fame, Jesus retreats. Jesus retreats from the crowds, and just like donkeys, he becomes a slave. What do we use donkeys for? To carry our burdens. Beast of burden. Right. Paul tells us this in his letter to the Philippians. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. A servant. Jesus shows us what it looks like to be a slave. And not just any slave. A slave to God's love. We're going to get there later. But it's significant that when they're in the upper room, the first act that Jesus does, you remember, he takes off his garments, he grabs the basin and the towel, and he is a slave to God's love as he washes the feet of his disciples. He is a slave to God's love as he, which we come to, we still celebrate today. He offers his body and his blood at the table. He is a slave to God's love as he hangs on the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Jesus stubbornly refuses the way of the world to show the world what God's love looks like. So I want to suggest to you as you've drawn these donkeys, and many of them look fabulous, Choosing a donkey to ride on was a calculated decision, a signature move by Jesus to show us, to teach us the way of the cross, the way of glory, the way we reflect and honor God's character. His name made holy in and through us is through stubborn and persistent service in the name of love. Think about this. It was a donkey that bore the unborn Jesus to Bethlehem. And it probably was a donkey that stood over him sleeping in the manger. It was probably a donkey that took little Jesus and his mother all the way to Egypt to hide from Herod. And now it's a donkey that carries Jesus into Jerusalem toward the cross to show the world how deep the Father's love is for us. Understood this way? Maybe it's okay then for us to be an ass. <laughs> what? Maybe it's okay. Maybe it's okay if we're carrying Jesus' love into the world. Maybe it's okay if we're stubbornly serving in the name of Jesus as witnesses to our Father's love. We live into the love of Christ when we love each other, when we care for one another, when we serve and we become slaves together of God's love. That's all I've got. <laughs> We've got a little bit of time, so you can keep working, but I also, if there's any, because we can go to 8.30, and you can, if you need to leave, you can. But if you have a question or two you want to ask related to the sermon, because this is also a time to ask more questions, or if you want to ask Kim a question, I can bring her up here too. Yes? When you were talking about Ezekiel, mm -hmm. um, where it says that, uh, therefore, things of the Israelites, is that 
Yes. Yes. What, and again, if you follow the trajectory, the, the, when Pentecost comes in the book of Acts, it, the message is first going to Israel. It's even to the apostles a later revelation of God, certainly for Peter, as Paul comes on the scene, that now the Gentiles are being grafted in. Now there are hints, and remember the Gospels are written later. They're written after the book of Acts. So they, they happen before, but they're written after. And the Gospel writers are now pointing to what they later come to realize. But if you look at it in real time, meaning as it actually happened, everyone just assumes this is an Israel thing. And so, yes, that this is referring just to Israel. And then it's later when Peter has his vision of don't call what I call clean, unclean. And Paul gets called that suddenly the church realizes, yes, God has come first for Israel. But part, and again, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. That God is also going to graft the Gentiles in to Israel. So, yes, the answer is yes. Yes. You know, Carol, if you didn't hear it, was making the reference to that the day in which Jesus ride, rides into Jerusalem was the day that the Passover lamb was selected to be sacrificed. Remember, the context of all this is to preparing to celebrate the Passover. And the comment was made that, you know, you would think that someone who was an observant Jew, a good Jew, would, would have caught the, hmm, something's going on here. You know, I think it's, I, I don't know, and I'm not, I'm, I think you would say the same thing, Carol, so I'm not saying that you're not, but I think it's easy in hindsight for us to see the misses that we have that other people have. And I, I think that what's so tragic, and I think part, you know, I always wonder, why do we retell the same story? I mean, why don't we just, I, I'm with you, even though I'm a pastor, why don't we just go to Easter Sunday? I mean, that's what matters. Okay, Good Friday, let's talk about the cross. But why do we got to go through into Jerusalem? I mean, all this, oh, man, we know it's just bad news, man. It's just bad. And I think part of that, much like, and I think, I think um, in my Catholic upbringing, Maybe in the Lutheran Church, I'm, I'm not saying I'm fully well-versed, but in, when Holy Week comes in the Catholic Church, part of why you do the Stations of the Cross, part of why is this emphasis, and you almost read the lines from the Gospels, is this idea of you're there. You are there. And this harkens back to the Passover celebration was designed not just to remember, but to say to children, that's not them, that's us. And I, I, that's why we go through Holy Week, so that we, we don't just simply go, man, they were stupid. Or, man, they missed it. But we realize we're missing it, too. We're not seeing it as well. And, I, and, I, and that's where I think some of the best reflections during Lent, and particularly during Holy Week, are when we look back to what was going on, but we also see parallels in our own lives right here and now where we have blind spots, where we have a tendency to limit God or to miss what God is doing. And, you know, sometimes we miss what God is doing because we're simply not looking for it. But I will say this to you. Sometimes we miss what God is doing because God, and I'm going to bring this back to art, as the master artist, doesn't want us to see until it's done. I think that's really important for us to hear because a lot of times I think we beat ourselves up. But there are certain things, and God specifically says this, of I'm not revealing what I'm doing until it's done. And what that pushes back to, which I think is important, is are you going to trust me? Do you, are you going to follow me? Are you going to trust me? Are you going to believe, obey, simply when you know everything? Or when you, 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 you look back and go, man, God makes great pieces of art. And so I know this is going to be another masterpiece. Any other questions?
You're all good? You want to show me what your donkeys look like? Want to hold them up so I can see? Come on. Okay, here's the big question. Here's the big thing I want to ask. How, this is very important to me. Very important to me for Kim. How many of you came skeptical tonight that you were not going to be able to do this? Raise your hand. Be honest. There's no shame. And how many of you are a believer now in the magic of Kim Forsett? Kim, in the last things before I close this in prayer, do you want to just give a, a, a sense of what's next? I know it'll be on the bulletin cover for this week, but for next week, what we'll be doing? Okay, so if you didn't catch that, using watercolor, you're moving up in the world, not charcoal anymore. Watercolor, you're going to be painting the Garden of Gethsemane. And we'll be focusing on the petition of the Lord's Prayer based upon what happens in that time leading into the Garden and while they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can I pray for us and then we'll call it a night? Yes? Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for just a great night of of learning about gifts and skills that we didn't know that we had. I, I just so appreciate not only Kim's talent, but the way that she's able to teach and how she expresses art as a language. And she has tonight introduced us to the, the basics, the vocabulary, the very elements that we need so that we can continue to express. This is a form of worship, Lord, a way we can glorify you through the things that we create with charcoal and paper and next week with watercolor. I pray that this would be for us an act of worship, that not just in focusing on ourselves, how good we think it is or how good we don't think it is, but that we would, as we're creating in these weeks, give it to you, invite you into that process to reflect upon you as the greatest artist of all. We thank you also that you have helped us to see connections in your word, helped us to see uh, the deeper ways in which you speak and work in our lives. And I just pray that as we continue to focus on the Lord's Prayer, as we continue to look ahead to Holy Week, that we would not be distant from it, Lord, but that we would be as close as those who were there and that we would recognize in that risk, in that, that movement that you are with us, you are for us, that you will not leave us and forsake us, but that it's in that closeness that we realize just how deep your love is for us. And we thank you for that love and for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Have a great night. Thank you so much for coming tonight.